What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of writing, volunteering, and audiobooks. Our first guest is author David Baldacci, and we'll discuss his writing habits. Then we'll speak with Mr. James Porter from the Krista McAuliffe Space Center about volunteering in the community. Our last guest will be Joella Peterson from the Provo City Library, and we'll discuss the importance of audiobooks. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a story time with a review of If I Never Forever Endeavor, and we'll step into the classroom to learn about the possibility of another planet. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's Because I think librarians, like myself, are some of the best information resources out there today, I'd like to share with you a little insider information about a great list that librarians with the American Association of School Librarians put together each year called the Best Websites for Teaching and Learning. Navigating the web can be particularly difficult, especially when you are looking for high-quality websites that can help your children develop the qualities of innovation, creativity, and collaboration. To help us navigate the web and find the best of the best, the American Association of School Librarians creates an annual list of 25 Internet sites that offer tools and resources in the categories of media sharing, digital storytelling, managing and organizing, social networking and communications, curriculum collaboration, and content resources. This list is focused on the needs of librarians and teachers in schools. And if you work with kids in a professional capacity, this list is highly recommended for great applications that can easily be incorporated into your teaching and students' learning. But even with its focus on schools, the website's list has great potential for use in homes for all kinds of creative endeavors. For example, in the 2015 list is a website called Soundtrap. This website is designed to help you create music online quickly and easily. You can plug in instruments or use the ones provided, or even record a song directly using an external microphone. It's a great little tool for budding musicians to use to create their own compositions or to collaborate with friends to make a whole symphony. When you're finished, your masterpieces can be easily published using Facebook, Twitter, or iTunes. The sites like this one on the best websites list are free, and each one is a user-friendly resource that encourages learners to explore and discover the world around them. So no matter how you engage with kids, if you're looking for authoritative and dynamic websites that can develop 21st century literacies, then check out the American Association of School Librarians' Best Websites for Teaching and Learning. And that's a little information just for you, straight from Rachel's World. Rachel's World. There are certain habits that many writers share, writing every day, editing, testing passages, and so on. Today, I'm talking with author David Baldacci about his writing habits. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. David, tell us a little bit about your writing process. What 
what starts some of your books and and how does that process continue? Do you outline? Do you structure things in a different way? What does that exact writing process look like for you? You know, it's funny. I just did a, a book festival down in Florida. My really good friend, John Grisham, we were both up on the stage and we just sat there. We've done these before. We just sit up there and shoot the breeze. And somebody always asks the question, you know, how, what's your writing process like? And um, John, I know how John writes and John knows how I write. And so as soon as somebody asked that, John was like, oh, because he knows what I'm going to say. I don't know the ending of the book before I sit down to write it. It grows organically and evolves naturally as I'm writing along. And John is a outline everything, know the end before you sit down to write it. So um, we had two very diametrically opposed views of how to write novels, which is just fine because that shows writers that everybody does it differently. There's no formula or set way to do it. And you may change how you do things over the years, uh, how you approach your stories and, and building your novels and your characters. I certainly have done that. But for me, it's, you know, I will think about something for a long time before I sit down to write it because I want to know that I'm actually engaged and passionate about it. And then I will doodle around with some characters, a little bit of background on each, um, about maybe what the opening chapter might want to contain and where I might want to go from there for the next few chapters with that really an end game in mind. And then I'm getting, at that point, probably after a month or so, I'm really itching to write that first chapter because I'm just, it's like a horse in the starting gate. You want the gate to pop open so you can take off and start running. Um, and so that's what I do. I'll sit down and I'll write that first chapter and I'll sort of obsess over that for a while, trying to get it exactly the way I want at that point in time. And then I'll, you know, I might doodle around, think about where I want to go from there. I might do a little outline here and there, and then I'll go and write another chapter and I just keep going. I write linearly. I don't write, jump to the end, write the ending and come back or do something in the middle and come back. I really go from start to finish. Um, I don't write every day. I don't count pages. I don't count words. I feel like those are artificial goals. And I kind of rip some of my other writer friends. We're like, you know, <clears throat> if you write 2,000 words a day, what if they all suck? <laughs> but that, <laughs> That's a that, good question. That next, yeah. That next word is brilliant. Are you really going to stop? I mean, come on. Um, so I'm, I'm more into, I, I write, when I write, um, I mean, I don't, I don't write every day, but when I do write every day, I write until the tank is empty, until I've got nothing left. And then uh, I come back the next day. I love sharing the way writers write differently with my listening audience because it is so different. It's very much dependent upon the individual. You do also write for adult audiences as well as young adult audiences. So is there any difference to way, the way you approach books for those two different audiences? I would say the principal approach is just maybe some various word choices, some language that I would use in, a, in a, my adult books. I would probably not use in children's books. And I might shy away from some situations. Um, not, I'm not nearly as graphic um, in writing for young adults as I am. Although even in my adult books, I, I'm like Hitchcock. I like to leave it to the imagination. Um, I think that's even creepier and, and more tense and instead of describing everything out perfectly in perfect detail. But I would say other than that, not much. I, I will tell, you know, writers thinking about writing for a younger audience, uh, bring your A game because these, this audience is a discerning one and they are detail oriented. And if you don't bring your A game and plotting and character and dialogue and, and, and development and narrative and drive, uh, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because you're not going to hold their attention. These kids see a lot, do a lot, far more than I did when I was a kid. I didn't have nearly the stuff they have available to them these days. So don't think you can write down to kids and get, get away with it or be a little bit lazy in how you develop your story because they're going to nail you on it. 
So other than maybe a word selections here and there, maybe staying away from being a little too graphic in various uh, parts of the story, um, I didn't really change how I approach the story at all. Uh, just because I knew that uh, from my own kids, my own my kids are now grown, but I know when they were, you know, in their 12, 13, 14 years old um, and the books they were reading and how they got into the details and knew every single nuance of everything that they were reading about and could find any inconsistency in the story. I knew it was a tough audience. I I really appreciate you say that because I think some people look down on children's and young adult literatures as a little less sophisticated. But every time I talk to authors, they say how difficult it is to write for this audience because they are so discerning and and they will take you to task if you, if you do something wrong in a way that I don't think adults usually do. So I appreciate um, you noting that difference that I've also seen. As as you are finishing up your current young adult series, the Vega Jane series, what what is coming next for you, particularly in the area of children's or young adult? You know, I really I've I've gotten the itch for that now. And although I've um am working on a number of adult projects right now, I can't say that I'm never going to go back and revisit that because one, it was a lot of fun for me and got me out of my comfort zone and I think made me a better writer overall, writing for a younger audience. And two, I Scholastic is my American publisher. They're fantastic people. I, I just sent an email to a bunch of them they have been working with for the last seven or eight years and said one of the true pleasures of having written the series is having all of those people now in my life, you know, friends for life. As I said, we're all FFLs now, friends for life. And <laughs> that's, that was, a, that was a great thing for me. So I, you know, I, I, I wrote a um, book. I, I went out on a book tour last year for my fall book and I was going to write, I love crime the war since the 1940s. You know, I'm a big Raymond Chandler fan and Dashiell Hammett and I love, um, mystery set during that time period. And I was going to write a short stories and ebook only. I didn't tell anybody about it. I just started writing it on tour at night in the hotel after I got back from a day's worth of publicity and just to kill the time. And, you know, over the course of a couple of months, I had 120,000 words. It was a novel. And so that's going to come out in July, a book that publisher wasn't even expecting. And it was a very different type of story using language from the forties. And I got to describe the cars and the fashion and the, and the money and the food and the cigarettes and all that other stuff. It was just a really cool ride. So at this point in my career, I've written over 40 novels. I think that it's important for me to keep diving into different areas to keep myself fresh and energized and motivated. Um, and one way to do that is to write, you know, different things. So I really do think that I'll be back in the young adult field in the near future because it was just, it was a blast. And I can't remember having so much fun writing a series before. How wonderful. Have you ever considered maybe going even lower and going like middle grade or children's? I have, you know, and they're also a very a tough audience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've even thought about maybe some picture books at times, but I do like the middle grade and the, and the young adult. I like the teen, you know, anywhere from 10 on up. Um, cause I, I think that I, my, you know, my strengths are plotting and character development, um, on a, on a larger scale. And I think that age group can really appreciate that, um, where they can. And I also, you know, I don't want to write message books, but I do want to write stories that will resonate with people after they turn the last page and might have some life lessons that they could recall later on and think, you know what, I, I was, I know what that character did that situation. I'm in a sort sort of a similar situation and I saw what he or she did and, you know, it might give them pause and make them a little more thoughtful about a decision of their own. So that's also a positive thing for me. I love that you connect with your readers in that way. Tell us a little bit about how your readers have responded, particularly to Vega Jane, and what kind of feedback have you got from them? 
Well, it's interesting to go to book signing events uh, for the series and you see entire family standing in line with books, everybody from little kids to teenagers to parents to grandparents, all holding the same books and having read them together and coming up and talking to me about how they've read as a family, discussed the books and how it's been, you know, multi-generational and how different generations have different perspectives. You know, some of the kids love the excitement and they love the fact that they're reading about people that are close to their age, doing unusual things in an alternate universe. Some of the parents will say, you know, I liked the lessons that in the book about Vega Jane. I like her being independent and not judgmental and accepting and her relationship with Delph. Delph had a lot of issues. People made fun of him and bullied him. And but she was his friend and she supported him throughout. Um, and they liked the aspect message that sense. So really, I think multiple people, depending on their experiences and their ages, can take away different messages and themes from the books, which I think is a great thing. And I saw that a lot at my book signing events. And it was fun to sort of, you know, get down on my knees and have take pictures with little kids and see them so excited, hugging books and knowing that they were going to run home and open them up and read them because. Look, I, I again, I know how truly important influential books were in my life growing up, and I don't think I'd be here today if I weren't a big reader as a kid. And that would be my hope for most every child in the world is to to have a a big a big reader as part of their their experience. So tell us a little bit about that. What were some of the things that you loved to read as a boy? Um, I, I liked mysteries growing up in addition to fantasies. You know, again, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Lord of the Rings series. There was also a series set in the written in the 1930s about Freddy the Pig. Oh, and it was yes. 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 Upstate New York. Yes. A farm in upstate New York. I read every Freddy the Pig series there was and all his friends dressing up as cowboys and firemen. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I just loved that series. And I remember going to the library and, you know, there were big books with big pictures and the librarians were like, you really like that pig? And I'm like, yes, ma'am, I really <laughs> do. Um, he's got a lot going for him. Um, and I like the, I like, I was a big fan of, People know the Hardy Boys and all that, but I, I was a much bigger fan of The Three Investigators, uh, which was a mystery series that was done with Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, as an adult, I went back and I found this website that sold all first editions. So I went back and bought like all 65 first editions of these books that I read as a child. And my parents would buy them on my birthday. They would buy them for Christmas for me. And I remember just hoping and praying there was another Three Investigator book coming out on you know one of those days. And I would just grab it and I'd read it in like an hour. And just be enthralled. And, and I do remember the very first book I ever read, I was probably in first or second grade, I remember reading the entire book through, it was called The Magic Squirrel, it was based on a Russian parable. And um, that was the first book I remember missing terribly when I wasn't reading it. And I'd be at school waiting and hoping as soon as I got home, I could run to my room and jump from my bed and grab that book and continue reading it. So much so that like seven or eight years ago, I went online and found the first edition and bought it. I still have it. You know, I have it now. And it's, it's not a picture book. It's fairly a lengthy book. And it's certainly got a lot of words in it. And I went back and I was reading it. And it really sort of brought back the memories of that. That was the first time I ever really found myself lost totally in the imagination of the writer and the world that he had created. And I wanted to, I wanted to have that effect over other people, which is why I wanted to write my own books as well and started, you know, trying to write short stories when I was still in elementary school. 
What a beautiful memory, David. Thank you so much for sharing that. I I really hope that our listeners out there will find that kind of beautiful memory, maybe with your books or with somebody else's books, because reading, as you have noted, is just so important. David, as we conclude, we like to get a tip from our authors. So could you give us just a quick tip? If we have any aspiring authors out there, what is a tip that you would give them to get started? I would say, you know, the old adage is right what you know about. I would modify that a little bit. Um, and I think it'll be a lot better for you. I, I would write about something you would like to know a lot about. And one thing you need to have is drive and motivation and passion when you're trying to write a book. It's a long haul and you don't want to run out of gas halfway through. So you don't want to chase a trend. You don't want to say, gee, I'm going to write the next Da Vinci Code or the next Jurassic Park. Um, don't bother because those are trends and they already have authors who write those books. They don't need you to do that. And you're going to run out of gas because you're not writing it for the right reasons. If you have something you're really interested in, um, you know, I, I remember um, like Laura Hillenbrand, she was, in, you know, just uh, and fascinated and obsessed with uh, horse racing and with one horse in particular. And, you know, she, she wrote this fabulous book about this horse and it was a huge bestseller because she was obsessed with it she loved it she learned everything she could find out about seabiscuit and uh, it was a fantastic read because you could you could feel the passion in the prose in that book so i would say write about something you'd really like to know about and lose yourself in that that subject matter you'll learn everything about it you want to because you're fascinated with it and you have a passion for it that passion will come through in the story and in the plot and guess what you're not going to run out of gas you're going to finish the whole thing Thank you, David, for that wonderful tip. And thank you for sharing your passion with us today. I have so enjoyed having you with us today and and hearing about your journey and look forward to maybe those exciting new young adult as well as adult novels coming out of your work in, in the coming days. That that one you just described, the 1940s noir, sounds, sounds right up my alley. So I'm excited to see that one particularly. So thank you. That's, that's great. David Baldacci is an award-winning American novelist. Now it's time for story time with a review of the book, If I Never Forever Endeavor. My name is JC and I'm a student at Brigham Young University and I'm studying elementary education. The book that I had the opportunity to read was titled, If I Never Forever Endeavor. The author's name is Holly Mead, who also did the illustrations. On first impression, the first thing I noticed about the book was the illustrations. They were whimsical and lighthearted, which is something I really love. This book was about a little nervous bird who didn't yet know how to fly. The bird has to decide if it will try to fly, but it was not sure if it wanted to. The bird thought, if I never forever endeavor, which is where the title comes in, then I won't. Then he won't ever, ever learn. On one wing, he worries he might fail, and on the other wing, he thinks of how he may succeed. He worries that if he tries, he may get lost in the world. It makes him want to stay in his nest where he's safe and sound. I think this book would help other children to learn that trying new things can be scary, but sometimes when we try, we can find things that make us happy too. This book will help others know that mistakes are okay and a part of learning. This is such an important skill for young children to learn, and this book can make teaching this skill a little easier. My favorite part is that the bird tried and learned that she could fly. I also like this book because it gave me a chance to talk to others around me about making mistakes and how most people don't like making them, but they can be good and a part of learning. 
Boys and girls who are three to eight years old would like this book because it teaches about trying a new thing and how it's important to get past being scared so you can learn new things. Overall, I recommend this book for not only three to eight year olds, but for everyone. It teaches a great concept that we can really use in our lives. In every community, there are many opportunities for our children that we might not know about. Aquariums, zoos, museums, and even planetariums, like the one in our community, the Krista McCullough Space Center. Today, I have in studio with me Mr. James Porter, who is director of our Space Center. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to introduce you to our studio audience today. You run a local space center planetarium here in Utah. And one of the things that you do is you use a lot of volunteers and you use a lot of people in the community to help run this this wonderful program that you're that you're doing. So tell us what is it that you need volunteers for? What what is your volunteer cohort look like and why do you use volunteers? Yeah. So to understand kind of the volunteer program, understanding how the simulations work uh, becomes pretty essential. So we've got usually a flight director who is our employee, and they're going through and managing all the information that the kids are doing at their controls, whether they're piloting the ship, they're the captain that's giving instructions and talking to a computer. They're handling all of these interactions, and there's a lot. Usually there's one employee to maybe eight. Uh, Maybe there's two employees for 10 or 13. And so – we need volunteers. Those volunteers are going and, and they're helping out and they're learning typing skills and they're learning how to interact and be the 600 crew members that are in the fictional ship and interacting with these 10 people that are up on the bridge. And so that's one way that the volunteers can interact. But they also go up because we need them to see that these characters exist. And so they'll go up as the officers in the ship, sometimes as the aliens from other ships. Um, they become this added element that just makes it so that this experiential environment becomes more realistic because they see, hear, interact with unique personalities. Um, But our volunteers do so much. They get to participate as the doctor of the ship that becomes that kind of inner voice to guide a captain that might be struggling or feel like they don't have enough confidence to overcome these situations. But then they also can be that that character that comes in and interacts with and challenges them face-to-face. A lot of the stuff we do is over the microphone, and and they we let their imagination run wild with who it is they might be talking to. But when they see that there's someone, and that's usually our volunteers. They see our volunteers, and they're in costume, and they're, um, they're actually there. The realism of, oh, the choices I make are so much more. Yeah. Uh, important now because there is someone out there that's being affected or there's someone who I'm opposing and I and I have to overcome them because it's not just an idea. So our volunteers give a a depth to the experience and so that's why they're so vital. Uh, the other thing is that if, if we were going through and trying to create these experiences, they'd be very limited if we didn't have volunteers there and they'd be a lot more expensive. One of the things that's great is um, as we're looking to expand and build our new facility, I love that when people talk to me and say, well, you know, why don't you charge a little bit more? And I go, because I don't want to. I don't want kids to have to spend a lot of money to come. I want as many people able to come through the facility as possible. 
And so by keeping our prices low, having a volunteer program that helps sustain that, we are able to keep that a service to the community rather than something as more of a profitable venture. Here at Worlds Awaiting, we talk about all kinds of literacies. We talk about, you know, reading literacies and scientific literacies. And what you're describing here for me is very kind of social literacies and community literacies and, and interacting together as a community. I really love this sense that you bring adults from the community in and teens from the community in and all interact together and make this very much more of a social experience than than maybe just, you know, sitting in a planetarium or, you know, seeing something like that. How have you seen that benefit, these these interactions that everyone has? What what particularly for those adults and others, what what kind of benefits do they see in their own experience and growth as they volunteer at your center? You know, one of the benefits of volunteering I see is progression. We see these volunteers come in. A lot of times they're seventh graders um, and they're looking for something that they, they enjoy the experience of the Space Center and they want to enjoy it more. Um, but what's great is they start to realize the employees that we have were volunteers and they've developed skills and they've worked hard and they've tried to overcome some of the limitations that they had to get to that point of being employed at this place that they love. Um, and so they see that growth and they get to set goals. And we have a system where they go through and they have to get passed off as the doctor or as the aide in the ship. And so all of these different positions and facets, they know here are very specific skills that I need to learn and develop and perfect so that I can someday reach this goal of this amazing, fun job. It's one of the best jobs. Uh, all through high school, whenever people said, what do you do? I said, oh, I scare kids for a living. It's great. Um, and and probably back then I enjoyed the scaring them more. <laughs> now I see the educational benefits. Uh, that just kind of naturally yeah. happened. But what I what I love is that there's a progression. We have also um, a demographic amongst our volunteers that when you – if you say, oh, well, who's our sci-fi people? Uh, you go, know, these are people that generally would probably stay home a little bit more, are a little more quiet, a little less outgoing. And we now tell them, you need to get into a costume and you're going to interact and you're going to be this bold character. And you can't stand down from this captain because we need you to challenge them. We need you to make them really think and fear for them. And so right there, we took this, oh, I don't like being in front of other people, kid, and we're making them be someone in an environment that's safe, that they have to stretch themselves. Um, and, you know, it's it's a great opportunity for growth. That's the thing that I love about the, the volunteer program. Um, it's also, like I said, a, a safe place. Um, a lot of these kids, uh, you look at some of the epidemics that are going on around, mm-hmm. and I think that one of the ones that is becoming more – it's not that it didn't exist before, but we're being more aware of it. Uh, and that is depression, and you've got uh, anxiety, and you've got all these different things that kids normally would, you know, we'd kind of push them and say, oh, they'll grow out of it. And and here we put them in an environment where they're safe, and they grow out of it a little bit. Um, but they're surrounded by others who might be going along those same routes. And I would say that the one of the secret successes of our program, we've been really good at education but we're really good at providing a safe place for some of these kids that are endangered. Uh, And I I really do say that they have been in danger, that they don't have a place where, you know, if things are going bad at home, they can come to the Space Center, and they've got their Space Center family who will support and care for them. Um, 
And what's great is they do that, and it's not just a place to hang out. They're there to work. They're putting in hours, and they're helping out uh, to make this program better and make the experience better. And so one of the great things about the volunteer program is kids who are struggling always need someone or somewhere to go to. It might be a teacher. It might be a relative. And for a lot of them, it's been the Space Center. It was for me. Um, It was a place that I could go and be safe. Uh, As my parents went through divorce, it was a difficult thing. So the Space Center was a place where I could go. And even though there were supports elsewhere, I went there and I worked and I forgot about it. And as my emotions kind of went through and as I grew and developed to overcome and realize and understand, I did that while dressing up in costumes and going on and, and stretching myself. Thank you so much for sharing that very personal experience because I love how that just illustrates that particularly for kids and teens, having these kinds of places where they can go is so important. And if that's a space center, like you say, or wherever, it just makes it makes that it makes life so much better. And being able to provide that is is an amazing thing. I, I know that there are volunteer opportunities like this all over the country for all kinds of teens. And I would surely encourage parents and listeners if, if they um, want some place like this for their teen or their child, that just look, there's, there's going to be one there because this is an amazing way for people to have that safety and that security that you so eloquently describe in in this situation. When we have this wonderful community that backs up our kids and helps to support them, whatever that looks like, in this case, it looks like a fun space center experience. Why do you think that that allows us then to kind of deal with those emotional kinds of things as well when when we have when we have that kind of community support and and how do you see your community supporting kind of the social and emotional needs of all of the people that come into your center uh you know and i was sitting there trying to think of all the different types of examples of places that people can volunteer and and it's such a valuable aspect of our society that we need to go in and get involved we, we can't sit back. And so I think it's just another aspect of a healthy environment uh, or another way that we see a healthy community is a community that's involved together. Whether they come together and help build a park or clean it up or if they're going to go through and help build homes for people that are, are less fortunate. You, you look at this and you say any aspect of volunteering bolsters us up. And so when the winds come and the, the rains are hitting and we go, oh, We've got mudslides. We've got fires that have been going on. And you see this – I see those communities that survive through those difficult times. Those are the ones I bet that did come together and build a park. Those are the ones that regularly volunteer, that give blood and do other things. Yeah. These aren't people that suddenly decided that they wanted to be charitable yeah. and build a community. They had a community before and they continue to care for it. And so in our Space Center community, it's really interesting because we've got the district that supported us and helped us to be sustained. But we wouldn't have survived if we didn't have a volunteer program. Um, and what's really cool is we've got a lot of good things that are progressing. We're saying, you know, as we look at this technological age and all these skills that are out there in our community, we've got a technology-saturated environment in Utah County. And we use technology to help us in our tools for education. So right now, we're building open-source software. Uh, we've got a Thorium simulator uh, system uh, and actually, there's a BYU student that's going through, and he's helping us, and he's developed this program. And we 
we wanted it to be open source so that anybody can contribute because we want someone to look at this and say, hey, I have that skill. I can, I can contribute. I can go through and make this a better part of our community, and I can do it from home. Uh, or, you know, we're working on new costumes, and we want to reach out to these different entities and say, hey, I'm a teacher, uh, and I'm a social studies teacher at that. I can't do some of these things. But if someone has these skills, we'd love to work with you. And that way, whenever we hear the cheers at the end of a flight or we see the growth of a volunteer, we hope that they know that they helped make that possible. And that's what's part of being a, a strong community is, is all about, is we all get to share in those growth moments, in those successes. But we need all those little pieces to make it happen. Thank you so much, Mr. Porter, for shedding a light on the power of community and volunteerism to help us develop our social emotional literacies, particularly for our youngest teens and children. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. James Porter is the director of the Krista McCullough Space Center in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Now, let's keep focused on the skies and take a step into the classroom to talk about the possibility of another planet. It's amazing to think that just over a decade ago, there were nine planets in our solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. In 2006, Pluto was demoted to dwarf planet in a very controversial decision. Now, researchers think there is a possibility that we are still a nine-planet system, but not in the way you might think. It's our science spotlight in the classroom. Astronomers in the International Astronomical Union declared that Pluto wasn't a planet after they determined what a planet was. The three criteria are, one, the object orbits the sun. That's pretty straightforward. Two, the object has enough mass to coalesce into a round shape. That means it has to be big enough to have a strong enough gravitational pull that pulls everything into the center. Three, the object has enough mass to clear a path around it. Pluto only fails in one category. It isn't big enough to clear a path. It actually shares the same space with asteroids, comets, dust, and debris out in the Kuiper belt. Many of these objects are also classified as dwarf planets, and some of them have a strange orbital pattern as if there is some sort of gravitational interference. Astronomers at NASA and the IAU have been trying to determine the cause, and surprisingly, it is likely another planet deemed to be Planet 9 or Planet X. Theoretically, Planet 9 would be around the same size as Neptune and would have an elliptical orbital path that would take approximately 20,000 Earth years to travel. For perspective, 20,000 years ago, Earth was in an ice age, and while humans existed, recorded history wouldn't begin for another 15,000 years. Planet 9's composition is likely similar to Neptune as well, an icy giant on the far reaches of the solar system. After all, if it exists, it is traveling in the space between the Kuiper Belt and the outer regions of our solar system's Oort cloud. All of this has been calculated based on the orbital paths of other objects out in the Kuiper Belt. If the theory proves to be true, it would resolve five peculiarities within the solar system. Unfortunately, astronomers haven't been able to confirm the existence of such a planet due to limited technology. A search has been underway since 2014, and researchers have only been able to scan about 20-25% to 25 of the premium space where Planet 9's orbit should be. A new telescope called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, or LSST, should be coming online in the Chilean Andes in the next few years, with a heightened system for detecting objects further away. It just goes to show you that for as much as we are learning about the galaxy and our universe, we still have things to explore and learn about in our own backyard. 
Thank you for joining me in the classroom. Sometimes it can be difficult to get kids interested in reading, whether it's challenges with a learning disability or just not relating to the printed page. Often we can help kids by offering audiobooks. Today I have Joella Peterson from the Provo City Library and Studio. Welcome, Joella. Thank you. Let's chat a little bit about audiobooks. Yay. I think they are such an important format, and some people don't realize that they even exist sometimes. And one of the trickiest thing, I think, particularly with audiobooks is, you know, we, when we look at a book or a picture book, sometimes we, we can pretty much tell if it's a quality book or we have mm-hmm. some standard that we've learned in school how to do it. But with audiobooks, it's a little bit different. So yes. so how do, we, how do we judge a quality audiobook? Oh, it's so tricky. I think there... there there are a couple of standards that that I have and some of my friends have that um, when I was on the Odyssey Committee, which is an award for audiobooks, we got what we um, jokingly call Odyssey ears because we listened to so many things, um, just hours and hours and hours usually a day of listening to audiobooks that you start tuning in to things that work well and the things that don't. So some of the things that work well if the pacing is good, if you can clearly understand what people are saying. Sometimes it's jumbled and too fast or too slow and, and you lose track of what's actually happening. If you can't understand what's being said, it's obviously not a good recording. Another thing is if they are consistent with their accents Often they'll do character accents. And in books, um, they don't always say said Sally or said Johnny, you know, at the end of some dialogue. So if you're listening to an audiobook and you can't tell who is saying what, then you're just up a creek without a paddle, it feels like. So that's that's one thing that's important. Sometimes, so this is going into what's not so good, but sometimes um, there's there's narrators that breathe really heavily. And so it almost sounds like you're listening to Darth Vader a little bit as you're doing the recordings. And then there are sometimes you'll be listening and they'll be talking like this. And then all of a sudden they get really quiet and then loud and they're really quiet. And it's like this up and down. And and those are all things that distract you. And I, I think the main thing is a good audiobook does not take away from the book that it's trying to present. A good audiobook only enhances what is being done so that the experience is this amazing experience that a, a reader listener has. I love that sense because I have found that there are times that I will read a book mm-hmm. and then I will listen to a book or vice versa. I'll listen to a book and then read a book. And it actually comes out being a very different experience. Yes, very much so. Why do you think that happens? I mean, why does this format change our experience with the text? Well, so I I think there are a couple of different things that are going on. Um, One, there's a lot of times people, when they're listening to audiobooks, they are often doing other things. And I think... um, if you are driving down the road, for example, and your whole family or just you are listening to an audiobook in the car, driving is kind of one of those things where people are often on autopilot. And so they are completely immersed in what's happening. And so you have this experience that's almost 
as if you're taken and placed in this story, in this land, similar to what an experience with a movie would be like or something like that. For good or bad, you're placed within this this realm of something. You can't control when you're listening to the audiobook all of the different things that are happening. As you, as you read a book, you can decide how fast you're going to go. You can decide if you're going to speed read. You can decide if you're going to skip ahead to the end to know what's going to happen. Um, there are a lot of people I know that say, oh, this this seems like it's going to have a sad ending or, or I'm not sure about this. Let me just see what the ending is so that I can read the whole thing knowing what's going to happen. But with audiobooks, you're just along for the ride. And, and that can be a very powerful experience or that can be a very cringeworthy experience, let's say. Yeah. I think that that um, just shows the the power of these. So why do you suggest people maybe take a look at audiobooks? I mean, mm-hmm. what kinds of reasons do people come into your library and say, oh, I want an audiobook? Or what mm-hmm. kinds of reasons would you pick an audiobook over a print book? So um, there are a lot of, of, of readers that they have a hard time reading. So for example... Um, some, some people have dyslexia or some people have a hard time reading as, as fast as they need to for school assignments or things. I often get a lot of kids that come in and they, or their parents rather, and they say, you know, my child can't read or they can't keep up or they're not interested. And perhaps it's because the reading level that they're on is not necessarily a reading level that is of interest to them. So if they listen to audiobooks or if they listen to audiobooks and follow along with the reading, then they can actually strengthen their skills for reading and they can read on a level that's of interest to them. Or sometimes kids, they have a hard time getting past the first initial setup of the of the book. So, I mean, readers know that they usually have to give a book, you know, a certain amount of chapters or a certain amount of pages just to get into the story and understand if you're going to like it. And if you're a struggling reader, you have a hard time with that. And so listening to an audio helps helps set up the characters with the tone of voice, with the character accents, with the pacing, with special effects that, that are sometimes audio music or, or different things that just kind of grab readers a little bit more, even reluctant readers. And so audio is very powerful and important. And I think even if they're not necessarily reading words on a page, they're understanding story, they're learning vocabulary, and they're learning foreshadowing and deciphering and all those kinds of coding things that are very important with reading. Um, but it's in a in a way that can actually grab them. And that's not even to mention the fact that there are different types of learners. And so you have people who who are visual learners, but you also have people who are audio learners and kinesthetic learners and all different kinds of things. So audio is a very powerful tool, I think. And the cool thing in this day and age is, particularly with libraries, there's lots of ways to mm-hmm. access these kinds of audiobooks. So even though this is a particular library, I'm sure that most libraries have these things. So how in your library do you yeah. provide audiobooks audio for your patrons? Mm-hmm. So we have um, books on CD, and we also have um, 
OverDrive or OneClick Digital or things like that. So there's e-audiobooks and books on CD that we have. There's also what we call um, kits. So it's um, a picture book put with the CD that they can check out together for the for the really young ones. Um, but yeah, so we there are there are a few books on tape that are left over in our library, but <laughs> the those old are format. they are they are the old format. They um, are not necessarily purchased anymore, but there's still some people that have tape players and that go for that type of a thing. But mainly our library has um, e-audiobooks that are downloaded from OverDrive and OneClick Digital and the um, the books on CD. Yeah. I, I love to advocate for the options that libraries have. So check out your local library because yes, I know sure. that they're going to have things. And if they don't, ask for them. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So maybe recommend one or two <laughs> titles that you think that you think are excellent excellent okay. audiobooks. So I have to advocate for the Odyssey um, book winners that were for my year. So The War That Saved My Life on audio, fantastic. The reader, oh my goodness, the narrator, you just you just feel like you're in England. Um, the other one that I love from that year, obviously, because we picked it as an uh, honor, is Echo. Echo is fantastic because it has music that weaves through um, with the narration. So as they talk about a harmonica and they say, and they picked up the harmonica and played Old Syne or something, then listeners can actually hear what that sounds like. Uh, Corgi Siegel, I believe, is the musician that played the harmonica for that narration, and it just gives you chills. So that's that's one of those that I just think, please never read that book, but yes, do, but but mostly just listen to it because the listening is is just such an ex- amazing experience. Well, and the interesting thing about both of those books is they were award winners in other categories. Yes. So they're extraordinary stories, right? Because mm-hmm. they were well received in other you know, in print venues mm-hmm. as well. But I agree with Echo, um, Pam Munoz-Ryan. That is such a wonderful book to listen to because it really is about music and sound. And the audio just adds such adds to it. depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it adds just an extra layer of depth, particularly for things that kids may not know the music or they may not mm-hmm. know that sound. For me as a reader, when I read it, I'm, I could hear it because I knew those songs and I knew that sound. Yes. But kids may not. So being mm-hmm. able to connect those two is just a powerful way to. It's a power way, powerful way to have a story. Yeah. And it just adds, again, like we were talking about, that depth. So any other last recommendations you'd like to give to us? Oh, my goodness. Um, I I love um, The Ranger's Apprentice, John Flanagan, and Terrible 2. Those, those are just probably some of my, some of my personal favorites. The narrators are brilliant. Yeah. My my two favorite brilliant narrators are the series of Unfortunate Events. That's a oh, classic. Yes. Yeah, yes. Beautiful narration um, by the author on some of them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my other favorite narrator is the Harry Potter books with Jim Dale. <gasps> Jim Dale. <laughs> he also just did the um, Little Miss and Little Mister series yes. redoing. Yes. Oh, those, yeah. those are fun, too. Yeah. You, I just love Jim Dale. His voice is... He can like, make anything sound good. He can good. make anything sound good. <laughs> you're right. You're right. And th- that's true of certain audiobooks, right? I've mm-hmm. even had some audiobooks where I've read the story and not liked it, but listened to it in audio. And I'm like, that narrator just added. There's some, there are some books that I listen to just because that narrator is the one doing it. 
Yeah, so, so that's that's a good recommendation. Find a narrator you love. Find a uh-huh. publisher you love, and then you know, go that and way. then go it that way, and then find a librarian you love and ask them <laughs> exactly. for their recommendations. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Joella. You're welcome. Joella is from the Provo City Library. Now, join me as I step around the librarian's table to talk about children, books, and life. Today, I'm in studio with Carolyn and Shana to talk about library events. I'm in studio today with some fabulous librarians from the Provo City Library. Welcome, ladies. Hi. This is so exciting because one of the things I love about libraries is they aren't just about books and DVDs and things to check out, which they are, which is totally cool. But they're also about bringing the community in and bringing the community as part of a greater kind of holistic thing. And I love Provo City Library because you guys do that so well. You really foundationalize our community and what you you do around that. So talk to us a little bit about some of the things you do kind of programming wise and why you think those are important. Why do you why do you do those kinds of things as a librarian? We do so many things at the library. If you ever look at our calendar. (laughs) It's a little bit ridiculous every week how many <laughs> options you have to choose from. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky enough to – I run most of our author visit program, um, and we have about 40 authors come every year. just depends on who we get each year. And next month we have some really great ones coming up. Um, we feel like it's important to foster that new writing community in particular um, and give them a place to to talk about their work, to share what it's like to be a writer, to help foster other young writers. Um, and so that's a neat part of my job. We've got um, – Saman Chainani coming next month. We've got um, Ali Carter and Ali Condi. And then at the end of February, we have Trisha Levenseller and uh, Charlie and Holmberg both coming. So some really great YA and children's book authors in particular that Very are coming cool. up. So that's a neat thing. Um, I also run our Monday night performance series. So the first third and fifth Monday of every month, we have some kind of free cultural performance. Um, so we've got Wasatch Ballet coming in March. We have a performance of Alice Wonderland. Um, and those are really neat because it's a great way, especially for young families, to bring their children to an art experience that doesn't cost them anything. Right. And if you've got a little two-year-old who can sit through 10 minutes and then you have to go, that's fine because it's yeah. a pretty casual environment. So it's a great way for kids to learn how to experience the arts and how to sit through that and enjoy it. Um, so that's a really exciting part of my job that I am very excited to have. <clears throat> I, I really love that, it just kind of embracing all of the arts. So it's the literary arts and mm-hmm. musical arts and the dance arts and all of those kinds of things because because that is that kind of experience. And I love the fact that libraries are a place that families can mm-hmm. – it's kind of that foundation, right? And and particularly when we talk about like children's services yeah, too. Absolutely. I think, mm-hmm. I think so that's many. one of the things that libraries kind of have been known for, like story times and absolutely. summer reading programs. Mm-hmm. But but you guys also kind of extend that into, mm-hmm. to, into other cool things. So many ways. Yeah. We yeah. have a Coding Plus program that we run, um, which – introduces kids 9 to 12 to basic computer coding. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a kids and cameras program, which is in our basement creative lab, which is our state-of-the-art film studio mm-hmm. in the basement of our building. Um, we built it out of an old storage room. Yep. <laughs> um, and we have kids ages 9 to 12 in there making stop-motion films. Um, so we do all kinds of really, really exciting, interesting things for kids. Mm-hmm. On top of story times almost every single day, we mm-hmm. have Sometimes multiple times a day. Sometimes yeah. Often multiple times yeah. a day. We have Monday night programming. We have crafts. Um, right now we're gearing up for a big fairy tea party. 
which is our big annual which program. Which is which is year. like if you know Provo City Library, <laughs> you know Fairy Tea Party because yes. this is like this is like the iconic program it at, at Provo City Library. It is. It's I, a thousand tickets for it. I know. <laughs> and it's so amazing. I attended when I was a very small child, and now it's fun to be kind of on the other end of it and seeing it all come into fruition. Mm-hmm. So tickets do go yeah. on sale for that this Saturday. Yeah. Um, So yeah, (laughs) yeah, if if you want a ticket, you better get there right away. But I, I will say one of the things that I love about the fairy tea party is that your director, Gene Nelson, dresses up in his fairy costume and comes. And I'm just like, that is dedication of a leader (laughs) who will dress Uh up in tights and come to the fairy tea party. And he he even got a new fairy king costume. He did. He did. He's ready. Well, he's totally ready. Yeah, Yeah. he's totally ready to do it. But I just think that's so delightful, right? Because Mm -hmm. it really is for anybody. These aren't aren't the kind of things where you say, oh, it's just for this kind of person Mm -hmm. or this kind of kid, right? It's it literally is for everybody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We try yeah. to have something to appeal to anyone. for all ages, and we're always yeah. questioning who are we missing, what demographic are we not yeah. reaching. Like we yeah. recently introduced um, Tween Academy because we felt like we didn't have as many fun things for those kind of middle school age kids yeah. to do. And that one we did a Harry Potter Academy last August. Very cool. Um, so we're always trying to think who can we yeah. reach. Right now we've got this is quite in the distance, but we're working on a Regency romance tea for adults Ooh, in the fall. Okay, I'm there. Right. I'm there. That's what I'm buying tea. It's I love fun. the fairy tea, but that's... We need something I'm, for the adults too. I'm right? there. <laughs> I'm totally there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing I love about a lot of things you do is that you take the library out to the community mm-hmm. and then you bring the community into the library. So I know like for some of your summer reading programs, you actually do story times in some of our local mm-hmm. parks. We do. We do stories in the park. Yeah, which Absolutely. I think is great, which mm-hmm. might reach a different audience than those that would actually come into the library. Absolutely. And we try to go visit parks that aren't mm-hmm. close to the library that are in different areas every mm-hmm. day of the week. And a lot of people don't know, we bring materials you can check out. So if you come to stories in the park, bring your library card. Yeah. You can yeah, check materials books. out. Uh, and I love that, you know, kind of celebrating nature and celebrating, mm-hmm. you know, all all of those kinds of services, like the park services that, that are offered here in our community. And then you'll often bring in, like, from our recreation center, we've, we've done, I've done yoga uh-huh. in the library, yep, right? Yep. Yeah. Just about so. every month we end up having yoga at the library. It's, so. it, I, I go and do yoga. At the, uh-huh. And in some awesome. ways, I actually prefer doing yoga in the library instead mm-hmm. of at the rec center, right? I'll go do Zumba at the rec center, <laughs> but yoga in the library, right? It's a little more relaxed. It it is. It just is, you know, a different environment. Right. And so I love that kind of crossover that our other city services, Mm -hmm. not only are you promoting them, but you're helping you're helping open people's eyes to Mm -hmm. to what's available. So So of, of all of these amazing offerings, what has been like the rock star thing that you were just like, yes, this, this is the program that I will remember for the rest of my life. Gosh. <laughs> Anything I, where we have to dress up. I have yeah, a collection a of costumes. costumes. There you go. <laughs> Got a duck costume and a fairy costume. There you go. So many things like that. Yeah. The fairy tea party is always so memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, this past, Shana mentioned our tween Academy when mm-hmm. we did Harry Potter and I was dressed up as Pomona Sprout, which is always very memorable. Yes. Wearing I love a it. coat and, indoors. And the library already looks like Hogwarts. So it, yeah. we it just totally embraced does. it. We totally embrace it. it. I love it. Well, this is one of those things that I just love to share with people because I think a lot of people don't realize how progressive libraries are mm-hmm. and what these, any library anywhere, whether it's Provo City or mm-hmm. any library on the planet, 
you're going to have a lot of these services and programs. So, you know, check it out, right? Mm -hmm, go go find the calendar, ask them what they do, because I don't know of any library in the world that is not going to provide some of these for, for the mm -hmm. public, particularly here in the United States. So thank you, ladies, for, for sharing all the fun that you do at Provo <laughs> City and Happy opening our it. eyes to the context of libraries. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Good job, guys. That's perfect. perfect. That's exactly what we needed. That's I love it. Good. You guys are amazing. <laughs> Keep up the good work. And I, I totally am at that Regency T. It's going to be fun. And yeah, we're going to get... I think we've got Sarah Eden on board and Julian oh, then, Donaldson. Okay, then and... if you get Sarah Eden, the tickets are going to sell out in like Very quick two minutes. seconds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> And I think we're only going to be able to have about 200 or so tickets. So we're going to get a little panel of some of those Regency authors. Oh, and... Yeah, I want five sessions, like fairy tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might you might have to have like two or three because yeah, particularly Sarah, I cannot. Sarah Eden is just so huge. I just mm -hmm. and it seems and she's like delightful too. Oh, she's, me, so I, she's totally. I've heard her speak several times, and she is absolutely <clears throat> delightful. But it seems like in the past six to eight months, she's like kind of exploded mm -hmm. in a really interesting way, which I think is I think mm -hmm. it's lovely for her mm -hmm. and and lovely for because she tells a good story. Mm -hmm. yeah. She tells an absolutely good story. So mm -hmm. I'm lovely. really impressed by that. But that. Okay. Yeah, we're totally, excited. Totally yeah, on I'm board with excited. that. I, I will. I will be in line early. And I'm, and I'm pushing to make it as fancy as possible. Like I want people wearing hats when they come. You so. should. I'm putting. I think we should make that a Just requirement hats, to come in. Hats required. Mm -hmm. I like it. I am totally. Mm -hmm. I am totally on board with that. <laughs> you guys are doing some amazing stuff. I'd like to thank Carolyn and Shana for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had such a great show. First, we had author David Baldacci talk to us about his writing habits. Then we spoke with the director of the Krista McAuliffe Space Center, James Porter, about volunteering opportunities in the community. Our last guest was librarian Joella Peterson, and we spoke about the importance of audiobooks. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm -hmm.